Hey, Shannon, have you heard anything lately? You know what, Tanner? I have. What have you heard? I heard that you can email your questions, your comments, and your show title ideas to poppetscorner at gmail.com. Are you telling me that our fans can actually be involved with the show by submitting their questions, comments, or show topic ideas to poppetscorner at gmail.com? That's right. Poppetscorner at gmail.com. That's spelled P-O-P-P-I-T-T-S corner at gmail.com. Submit your emails now. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the last episode of Poppets Corner of 2022, I should say. I got you there for a sec. Uh, I'd like to uh, to uh, once again bring on the hostess of the mostest, Mr. Shannon Fry of Avenger of Blood. I always appreciate a moment of your time, sir. I'm, uh, you know, honored and grateful. I just want to kiss your ass a minute for, you know, this year. We've done a lot together. Um, yeah. I hope you're doing well. I hope you've uh, enjoyed every moment of it and will continue to. Uh, throughout the next, you know, coming months or years, or however long this this lasts, with with the the show here and just having fun talking shop. So, how you been, man? I've been good, man. And and back at you, all that stuff. I've had a good time. Yeah, we've done a lot together. We've done a lot individually. It's been good, man. Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking some some shop here. Um, what I thought. We would do today, of course, this is the annual kind of retrospective uh, of the show and whatnot. I, I purposely picked my top kind of 10 or so uh, guests for this year and why, and kind of given some individual reasons why those episodes have meant a lot to me. Um, and again, these are obviously my own opinions. Everyone else, you know, probably has their favorites or. Or, or doesn't have their favorites or whatever the case may be. And you may have, you might have some other differing opinions of the, the said guests, but it doesn't really matter. That's why they're opinions. We're allowed to have our own. Um, so I have made a compiled a list here of just some of my favorite guests. And we could probably talk about some of our favorite moments and, and just branch off and have a cool little, little chat here. So are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. All right. So, um, right off the bat, I mean, I might put, have to put this clip in. In fact, after we get done talking about this guest, I'll just put the clip in. Yeah. Uh, when when I interviewed my buddy, Mr. Tim Campbell of Visceral Decay, earlier this year, he told an amazing story, and I want to kind of hype this up a little bit, uh, of the first his first ever gig that he played uh which was done in a mansion literally a week after the gals uh who who um you know was who owned the mansion or whatever like her father killed himself and then a week later after they cleaned up all the blood and shit apparently they played this this show so i'm gonna put the clip in right here and uh, enjoy so when was your first show and where was it at? Okay, yeah. So this was funny. Uh, so one of my friends, and this is the this is the first show we ever played. One of my friends, her name was Danielle. 
um, she lived, this is crazy. This is a crazy story. So she lived in like a mansion in Orange Park Acres, right? And a couple days prior, her father blew his head off in the in the garage. And she had came up to us and was like, hey, my dad killed himself. Do you guys want to play a show in the house? There's nothing in there. Uh, invite whoever you want. And you can play the show. And I was like, uh, yeah, we're going to do that. And, Please tell um, me you didn't play in the garage. No, 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 no. <laughs> but what's crazy, bro, what's crazy is in the garage was still the chair that was set up and the gun case was open. And the people had just cleaned all the blood and shit and the brains off the walls and the floor. But the chair was still set up and the gun case was open. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was... And uh, okay, so I had hit up my friend, Black Metal Ashley. Um, I told her, hey, and this was the day of the show. I said, I'm like, hey, we're playing a show tonight at this mansion. My my friend's dad killed himself in it. Um I want you to invite as many people as you can. And so it, it the show started around six o'clock at night. She managed to get over 200 people packed in this mansion house, bro. My, our first show. And, um, it was, it was an awesome fucking show, dude. There's a huge, I still have pictures from, I'll have to sh uh, show you the pictures, but there's a huge circle pit. Like, um, the cops showed up and the cops loved us and they let us play out our whole, they let us play out our, uh, our whole set and then we had to stop, you know, of course, but they were there. They, they showed up and, uh, cause they got noise complaints, but, uh, they let us continue the show. And, um, yeah, man, about, about close to 200 people showed up that night just by word of mouth. Uh, thanks to black metal Ashley, but that that's probably the most, um, brutal start to visceral decay that, uh, story that I have. Anyway, so my next uh, guest, I would like to kind of give a little bit uh, of kudos to. This has been one of my, my one of my tops for personal reasons, and that was when we interviewed Alejandro Pelais from uh, who who played with uh, Madras on the Into the Aquatic Sector record. Thought that was a killer uh, interview. I went back to listen to it just the other day, and we did a good job. So that, that was yeah. a good one. He's he's such a cool guy. Very cool guy. And I, I love the fact that we kind of documented. I, it, documentation is important to me, and I'm sure it is for you too. So, you know, to have all that stuff documented is, is a, again, a selfish kind of reason. But I'm going to save the cherry on top, though, for uh, the last. Uh, one of the guests that I absolutely enjoyed interviewing this year as well was the great uh, Blaze Bailey. You know, he's so charismatic and just his energy is super fun. And I had a blast interviewing him. That was a very cool interview. He, he was, I mean, dude, it was just like super easy. One yeah. of the most easiest interviews I've, I've done was interviewing Blaze. Uh-huh. And he was so nice. You can tell he was just the kindest guy. Yeah. Well, not only that, but I mean, let me ask you this, you know, when you, when you reach that level, it's just like nothing else, you know, you realize just how important you mean to people, 
when you reach that level. So I think having some humility and, and just being humble and it's just like the coolest thing for, for, from our heroes. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Cause I'm sure if there's a, a, you know, a kid out there who is a diehard Avenger of blood fan and he got the opportunity to interview you, you'd fucking take it. Mm -hmm. I know you would. And you'd be super grateful. Absolutely. Because it wouldn't mean as much to me as it does to him, you know? I mean, think about the first time we uh, did that interview. It meant a lot to me. Myself as well, man. You know? It, <laughs> the level doesn't change. I'm just saying, though, when, but when you reach a certain point, maybe in your life or whatever, you just realize that like certain things that you may have taken for granted – or, or that mean more to people, you give them that that kind of gift and whatnot of just your presence. Right, right. You know, this, this year for me, and, and let's branch off of this too, before we get into um, more of our top guests, I want to give you the opportunity to, to choose a few if you, if you have some in mind. Yeah, was, uh, well, I'm going to second you on the Tim Campbell and, and I'm going to also go with you on the Blaze Bailey. But I think Doro Pesh was this year. I think that was last year. Was that last year? But I will put in the clip that that uh, you're referring to. Is that what you're uh, what you're talking about? Yeah, I thought that Explain was it. amazing. Explain yeah. it. Well, well, when even when you went into the because uh, I've never heard this from her perspective when uh, when the Berlin Wall came down and where she was. And what was going through her mind at the time, like, and being told it was on the news and to come in by some other famous guy at the time, right? Gene like, Simmons from Kiss. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, that, that was just a mind-blowing experience to me to be able to, to just hear what she was thinking. But the, the whole interview was good. Well, thank you, man. That was that's one interview where I wish I did better. There's certain interviews I just always wish I did better on, and that's definitely one. I hope I get the opportunity again, which you know I will in the near future. We'll do we'll do it probably together and whatnot. Okay, and and, and going off at this point is um you know Tribe of Agony was released kind of right before the Berlin Wall kind of came down as as well, and I don't mean to to bring up old old memories or whatever, but I'm just kind of curious. You know, going off of, you know, once the Berlin Wall fell, what opportunities did that present to you specifically um, in terms of touring or business or or how that whole entity kind of changed in the music business? Yeah, actually, oh, I, I have to tell you a little story. Um, it was 1989 and, you know, I was a big Kiss fan. I, I'm still a big Kiss fan. And Gene Simmons, he produced one of our records and it was 1989. And I was singing something. We recorded it in L.A. in the Fortress studio where Kiss um, recorded Hot and Shade. And, you know, a great engineer, Tommy Thayer was there. He was actually the co-producer. And, you know, I was singing something. And then Gene Simmons said, hey, Doro, you got to come, you know, into the lobby. There's something on TV that might be interesting. 
And I said, no, Genial, I'm just having too much fun. I'm just laying down this vocal and I think the song sounds great. He said, no, I think it's really important. You sh should check it out. And I went into the lobby, looked at the TV, you know, hanging out with Gene, and we saw that the wall came down. And it was so unbelievable. I had no idea because I was so, you know, I was so involved in making this record, you know, and then sometimes, you know, you don't, you don't get to see the news and stuff. So I was totally, you know, I was totally shocked, surprised. And of course, very happy. That was the first time that something, you know, came together without a war, without, you know, without fighting. Uh, it was great. And then that was the first time that I could um, play in the former East German side, I think in 1991. So before it was not possible. And yeah, ever since I could tour all over, like even Eastern Europe, which that was impossible in the 80s. But yeah, so so the metal world just got, you know, bigger and that was great. And It's good. It's good. Good stuff here. Uh, another one I wanted to uh, go off of, and, and this is one that you brought to excuse me, the uh, the table here. Uh, and that was uh, the great Vinny DiBianca of Vicious Circle. I just really loved, I, I really loved talking with him. That guy, he can talk, man. And, and it was awesome just getting the opportunity to chat it up with him about his really fascinating career because he comes from like an Italian family. There's music all around. There's all these different kinds of, you know, forms of music, different instrumentations and, he ultimately chose playing death metal of all things. So it's just really cool to hear his background in music and how he got to that point of wanting to play extreme music. Yeah, that that is my number one interview for last year. I was saving that one, but since you brought it up, oh yeah, man. Dude, like to go from Elvis to blazing speed guitars because he's such a he's very fast on his right hand like seriously like hearing his guitars man there's something else he's got the riffs are just amazing man i think he's one of the the most to me he's one of the most underlooked overlooked overlooked guitarists there is in metal like that guy can play anything just amazing man and such a nice guy but and he was also kind of a bucket list for me too you know one of those in my life i have to talk to this guy like <laughs> right he was one of them man so yeah you know you know what was fascinating for me was the 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 story that he told of when he played his first show at his school I thought that was really <laughs> fascinating. So I'd like to play that clip now for everybody and, and again, you know, have people check it out. So here you go. Another question I had for you too was, you know, I I want to say when was your actual kind of first show and, and who was it with and how was that whole thing get started for you? Eighth grade talent show. That was it. We played um, Rock You Like a Hurricane. And we had an original that we wrote, which was really cool. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, I mean, we only – it was two guitar players and a drummer. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, it was just, you know, it was, it was slim finding people liking that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, we were friends. We hung out all the time. You know what I mean? And I was playing guitar. Oh, I started playing drums first. Then I switched. And, and at this time, around eighth grade, I wasn't playing drums anymore. 
you know, I was playing um, guitar, but what I learned in drums really, really, really helped me with my timing, especially with like off times and stuff like that. Like, you know, all the weird shit that like, you know, that I'll come up with once in a while, you know, it's like, you know, it helped me a lot, you know, but with uh, learning the drums first, I, you know, I can't read music or anything like that, but you know, my ear has always been good to me, you know what I mean? And you know, you can give me any song, I'll, I'll learn it. I'll play it for you. No, for no. So sounds like a jerk off thing to say, but I mean, that's how I, that's how I became a musician at all. You know what I mean? Right. Well, everybody starts somewhere. So with this talent show and whatnot, I'm just kind of curious on the differences of the reactions with the cover song compared to the original song, because the Scorpions, you know, there might not have been a lot of people that knew who the Scorpions even were, um, especially in the eighth grade, right? Talent show in 1980 whatever 84 85 or whatever but i mean what was the the reactions to each of these were they about the same because they thought both of them were originals or her no I, you know you know what i don't really know what the hell people thought uh, you know out there you know what i mean in the audience because there was no singer i mean we just played i mean we just played the music you know what i mean and you know we we, we played the song but it was like you know you were lacking stuff i mean we just didn't care we just wanted to go up See, that was the thing about metalheads, man. I just wanted to go up. I wanted to make some noise. I wanted to play. I didn't care. You know what I mean? It's like something about uh, I don't know, playing in front of people. You know what I mean? I didn't. I didn't experience it until that that day, right? So, um, basically, it was like it was like it, it's what you would want to see, man. Like all the all the young you know girls that you're friends with or not friends with, you think they're cute or whatever. And they're like, yay! And it was just really cool. It was like. Like all the students really dug it, you know what I mean? You know, the parents were like, "Okay, very good, very good. Come on, move <laughs> along." But you know, we didn't care because so, we didn't we didn't care either. So like, you know, we played the you know after we got done playing that song, then we played the original. It definitely should have had more riffs in it than it did, and it was pretty long for having you know the amount of riffs that it did. But it was still cool. It was heavy, you know. And uh, so then after we were doing that. It was like we were, we were totally over time, you know what I mean? And we just didn't give a shit, you know what I mean? And then my drummer, you know, my buddy Pete, he goes into his drum solo and he's like, fucking curtains just start closing on us, dude. I was the fucking best, man. But it was just like we went out, we were like, yeah, everybody was screaming, man. It was fucking cool, dude, you know? I had my 15 minutes of fame that day, you know? We all did, you know? It, we so we that's- had fun. So that's what solidified you to say, this is what I want to do. I want to be in a band. This is it. Oh, dude. I felt, I just felt the energy from people. You know what I mean? I feed off of it. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I've played in front of, you know, this. I've played in front of mosh pits. I've played in front of people just sitting there staring at you, looking at you. You know what I mean? Whatever. You know, it's just like, you know, hopefully somebody comes out liking something, you know, out of the set, you know? You get one fan out of a, you know, out of a crowd. It's one more than you had, you know, even though you want two, three, 10, 20, you know. So, you know, in, in going forward and whatnot, another interview that, that I really enjoyed um, was the great Dirk Rogers of Bad Acid Trip. I love Bad Acid Trip. I loved him for years. This is a band that was on Sergi was on Serge's label from System of a Down. So if you're a fan of that kind of eclectic, I guess, rock and roll punk style music or grindcore, this is the band for you because it fucking rules. I can't even explain it. You kind of have to just go go see it for yourself. But 
this is a band that was literally playing stadiums opening for system over down. And they still play to this day. They play it like, you know, places like, you know, the doll hut Malone's and things like that. So it's just really cool that they still make like making music, no matter what, no matter how many people are there, no money, matter how many, um, you know, how many gigs they play. They just love doing it. And I'd like to play, you know, how they actually got signed to Serge's label. So here you go. Interesting. That's yeah. so did, did you end up doing the tour with system? Did you we say, did. okay. We, yeah. We toured. Well, when they were, when we first signed, they, uh, they were like, okay, you know, who do you guys want to tour with? You guys are really hard <laughs> to put with another band. And they were like, you know, you're too one year too uh too grindcore i guess for like some of the metal bands that they wanted to put us with uh and we just didn't really fit in they weren't really sure how to market us so they tried a couple of different some of them worked out some of them didn't uh we played a couple of shows because uh, our manager at the time rick sales was also slayer's manager and so we played a couple of shows of slayer uh one of them went really good one of them went really bad uh, and then they kind of were just, they didn't know where to put us. And so the first tour that came up for us was Guar and we toured with Guar for two months. Best fucking time of my life. It was amazing. We, Dave Brocky, um, uh, Corey was, all of them were still alive. And, uh, I think it was war party. I think it was the name of the album. Um, it was fucking insane. It was great. The nicest, hardest working fucking band. They, I learned so much from them. Um, and then, uh, actually Dave Brocky actually one time we were in New York and he, he's like, Dirk, I need to talk to you. Come on. So we go upstairs and he's like, sit down. He's like, all right. Cause I got to tell you some things. And I was like, okay, what do you got? And he goes, I like your band. I like, I like your energy and I like your theatrics but you gotta learn to slow the fuck down. You talk like you're on speed. And he's like, you gotta realize when you're talking to your audience, they're drunk <laughs> and they're retarded. And I was like, oh, really? And he goes, they're not really, but you gotta pretend they are and you've got to talk slower. <laughs> So makes a lot of sense. You got to talk to him. And I, I did actually take that to heart. And it was the same thing that Darren had told me once. He's like, why you, you agonize over these lyrics. You have pages and pages of all these punk rock lyrics. And he goes, but then you scream your fucking guts out and no one can understand anything you say. Why don't you try to slow down so people can understand what you're saying and, and be different from all the other bands that are that, you know, are, are just screaming every their ideas out that aren't are just bouncing off of people because it's just a sonic wall. And I took all that to heart. And that actually might go back to the question of my characters and things like that, because instead of just being the one character of or it's, hey, everybody, let's do talk like Kermit the Frog or something like that, you know, uh, just so that the it's a little clearer in my enunciation. Um, another one that I've again, it's another bucket list item for me, uh, was getting back in touch with some, some of my roots, some of the root players that we used to play back in, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009 at Hoagie Bar, Michael. So we kind of use this as a vehicle for both of us, I would say, to get some of these people on and, and reminisce and 
document our our specific uh, histories, right? You know, you with with Vinny and and other guests of that caliber, we bring them on here, and it's no different than than what I, you know, do for the show. So, um, yeah, when I was talking with DJ Gunderson um, and Lucas Hockley of the band Dismissed on separate interviews, which was totally cool. I never thought that would happen. Um, but just getting back in touch with DJ of, of dismissed, they were, uh, a black metal band out in Orange County. They made a couple demos and that was basically it. But just again, getting the opportunity to document it much like Tim Campbell of, of visceral decay, who again, released, I don't even, I, I think they just had a demo, you know, I had to bootleg some of their stuff and was giving the members themselves their own copies of their stuff because they didn't have it. So like they have a live album and some demos and I kind of put everything together for them and to, to, you know, to, to do that. I should release that one of these days. I do have permission to do that. So one of these days I will do some, some visceral decay CDs just to give out to people, you know, it'd be cool. Again, document the legacy. Um, But you know, dismissed. That was you know no. Uh, it's it's no different for me. They were an important band for me, just like Xanthacroid and and whatnot. So, getting the opportunity to get back in touch with DJ, and now he's he's one of arguably my my best friends, just such as yourself and and other folks that um, I have kind of lost and regained along the way, which is totally cool. But again, it was just nice to reconvene in that interview specifically of you know what he defined as success i'd like to play now so here's that clip so but do you get where i'm when i'm where i'm going with this and why do you were not afraid to put yourself out there no matter maybe how, a little too much to well, an extent with, but, but it only helped you to at least create some sort of legacy for yourself in terms of, of an well, art form you know it's interesting because with bands maybe they have no problem getting themselves out there because they're in their element but like having to um do a presentation in front of a couple people or something like that you might not want to do that or maybe you have to take a test or anything like that and then there's something actually in i never played football but there's this incredible coach uh i think of alabama his name's nick saban and he's it relates to real life because he's getting his players ready for the draft. And he says, there's two types of people. You can either be an and a N D person or a, but person B U T. So he explains what and person is an and person is when we're going to talk about football, right? Hey, uh, Tanner's got great ball skills. He's strong. He's a good teammate. And he gets straight A's in the classroom and he's the hardest worker and you know, whatever. Okay. And he has a great relationship with his parents. Okay. Great guy overall. You name that same player. Okay. Great ball skills. You know, Tanner's, you know, great and strong, but he got in a fight at a bar, you know, freshman year, but this is my favorite. This is, what, this is what the coach says. It's on the Will Kane podcast thing. So put it on. But the the trainer wouldn't piss on him even if he was on fire. So it got me thinking. Like, and I and I played baseball, was in bands, and my way 
was I was just like being a good player, you know, on the field. But hey, would I rake up the mound or like would I take care of my stuff? There was people like that would make the team that would just hung out after the practice and clean the stuff up because no one else would do it. So the point is make yourself like better. Like treat almost treat life like an interview. Like every person you see, like try try to get them to want to talk to you again because each person thinks of the great like I think I'm the greatest person ever. Why should I, why should someone, you know, let me grace my presence with someone else. When you flip that, like, how can I spend a couple minutes talking to this person? How can I add value to their life? How can I just be engaging, have a high level conversation with them? So just trying to make yourself better so that like people, like, it's like what you're you're doing. People like want to help you. Like you're a positive dude. You're, People know you're not going to screw them over. That's not know? what my intention is ever. <laughs> Let me ask you but this I love it. to go off of your point, though. There are people that are afraid to even do that, though. They make excuses. I call mm-hmm. them anchors, but they essentially they have too many anchors on their on their ship that are they're floating out there. True. They use excuses to hold themselves back from achieving their maximum potential, as I'll as I'll call it. Uh, I love that. And what I always noticed is, yeah, I have some flaws too. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent. I've still you hide, you climbing, hide them very well. Still, dude. still you hide them very well. I appreciate it. But I'm climbing. I, what I always say is, is I'm, I'm still climbing. I'm still, I'm still getting there. So no matter how many comments I'll, I'll get, which, again, it's you guys talking, and thank you for this. But see, there's my butt there. <laughs> there, there are people that. Sit, you know, really love my way of interviewing people and whatnot, but I still think I'm, 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 I'm still getting there. Like I haven't achieved that, and I think having striving to become that every day only betters you. Like only working on not only your 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 weaknesses but your strengths as well, and and articulate. Like I need to work on my articulation as far as word choices and things like that. So maybe I need to see a vocal. You, you need to do ninth grade again. Yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. Right. But in, say, so in saying I. I that though, that. is, is I'm not afraid to always become better, a better version of myself. Yeah. And I get it that people are afraid of doing that. And it, it goes back to putting yourself, not being afraid to put yourself out there. Well, the what world. do you think would give people more confidence? Cause it seems like you understand it because I think because people are maybe afraid. I think are they afraid of doing the work putting because it, but I think it's it is a habit. Like you gotta you you gotta try. You gotta want to be better. You maybe it is. You know what? For me, I had to look in the mirror. I had to see like who who is this person I see? Is this like who I want to be? Who do I want to be? And it started with I want to like meet someone, and then if they ever say like. If they knew me, they would just be like, yeah, DJ Gunderson is just like a good guy, a man, <laughs> you know, like, a, like, a, it just help you out. Even if I don't know how to do it, I'll try to help you, you know, like someone just that doesn't cause any harm in the world, you know, just like a start with that. And then, so, sorry, I think I, I want to ask you your thoughts on I giving someone, comp- but I think it's confidence in that if you're good at something and you practice 
you're not going to be afraid. There is nothing to be afraid of. My whole thing is, is I'm not afraid to fail. I, I fail every day in order to succeed. I've always had that, that in the back of my, my mind is you can't succeed without failure. You can't be afraid to fail. I agree with that. We're going to fail. Yeah. Pe- everybody fails. Do you ever play baseball? That's where I played T ball and it was. You went awful. to school with Nolan Arenado. How do you not? You should be a fan. I'm sure you could hit him <laughs> up, get him on here. That would be so cool. It would be cool. Nolan um, Arenado. He's I gonna be a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Well, you know what's no, funny? But... I I remember not. I I would see him around school and I I no, really? I have met you know I've met him obviously he came into my high school but he was always he's a guy that. Not only right place, right time. You, you can't not say that as well. Right, he was in the right place at the right time with his hard work. A coach scouting saw him, and obviously that he worked hard to get to. Yeah, the it's MLB. hard to get signed, but then that's the next part is working in that system to to make it. That's where they weed out a bunch of dudes. Like, but yeah, that's interesting. You say that that sure there is some. Uh, beyond Luck, our control timing. yeah beyond sure. our control which you said there are things yeah. this is one of them mm-hmm. where it's right time right place and he's gonna be a hall of famer like baseball guys are gonna be like do you know who you're talking about he's like arguably literally you honestly dude he could easily be be debated as the greatest third baseman of all time like like that's, that's a like, huge that's achievement it's like, like babe ruth status you know on that like he'd be on babe ruth's team that's a hundred years. So I just, I just think it's so fascinating that technically you, you know this guy. Yeah, I've met him. <laughs> I've met him a lot of times, you know. But we, we never thought that people like that could get right? to that level. Absolutely. And I'm, and, a, I, and you're a dude that's like, hey, that's great, good for you. Not like, why isn't that me? I'm like, I deserve it. You're, you. Well, here's, here's, or, or do you struggle with that? That's the human element of, of being happy for someone else's success does that make sense yes and where i'm gonna i was gonna i was uh, let me branch okay. off of here real yeah, quick yeah. And, and you can agree or disagree no, of course if you can't be happy for other people's success nobody's going to be happy for yours that, that so, actually makes a lot of that would have taken that would have helped that would have um so know, if you can't be happy a few for, years <laughs> well if you can't be happy for your friends successes then when you succeed they're not going to be happy and then, for why, and then you'll be like oh they're not like yeah. You know, giving me there's props a, for it. Well, you weren't happy for them. Did you say, like, congratulations on anything? Well, baby, that makes a lot of sense, Tanner. I, I mean, I like that a I, lot. I, I appreciate mean, I, it. I hadn't heard that before, to be honest, but it's that's a great way of explaining it. Right. Like, I'm I'm happy for all my friends' successes, just like you guys are happy for my little victories, as I call them. And the bigger. Uh, I mean, I don't know what, it's not little victories, man. I call but, in order to. Because you're always, this is just, you're on that incline. Stepping that, stones. Yeah, the stepping stones, right. you're always increasing. Another interview that uh, really blew my mind, and again, it doesn't happen very often. It, it's kind of surreal when you're interviewing members of the community and whatnot. Uh, but when they pass away, and you, you know, you've interviewed them, you know, a couple months prior to that. It's a little strange and kind of, and of course it's sad, but I'm extremely grateful to get those opportunities to interview you guys because of those reasons, because we never know how long we have here. 
so it's just nice to know that we have the opportunity to document each other. And, you know, when I interviewed Dennis Berman, he was the, the sound man of, uh, of the Waters Club, which is a very famous club. And I want you to kind of branch off here if you know anything about the Waters Club. Uh, I was particularly not there around those times. And, and I know you were um, during, you know, the 80s and whatnot. But it was a primarily, you know, good sized club for, for heavy metal during the 80s. Would you... Um, would you know? Would you uh, say that's true? You know, that's very true. It was one of the few places that that would have thrash, the thrash shows back in the day. I know that much. I was never there. I never got to go. It was quite a distance from where I lived in California. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember reading Bam magazine and always seeing the article, what's coming, the 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 calendar. So in saying that, because that history isn't well documented, I mean, it's not like you, there's a bunch of documentaries on that place. It was nice to talk to somebody who was there for all of that. And it was essentially behind the board for all of those those killer shows that unfortunately were never documented. And to this day, and it's not an ego thing. It's I wish there were more of them to this day. I can't find any other interviews with Dennis Berman talking about the waters club. You know, I wish I spent a little bit more time with him looking back, but I'm so grateful for Sherman Jones and, and Gina, you know, for the opportunity and us putting together essentially what was like a big barbecue podcast where I interviewed 11 bands throughout the whole day. And we ate and drank and were merry and just, we're a community, right? That's what essentially I love bringing to the metal community and whatnot is, is that community aspect. And so it doesn't matter if you play in a band. It doesn't matter if you're a photographer, videographer, artist, painter, um, I don't know, a sound man, promoter, things of this. They all play an integral role in our community. And it's important for all of them to be documented. So Again, looking back when I heard Dennis Berman had passed away, you know, a few months after our, our interview, I remastered the audio, put together, you know, essentially the best that I could for that. And um, it was super nice to hear back from Sherman Jones, who was super grateful for that. And some of Dennis's family I, I was reading, you know, um, really valued that as well. So, again, just another aspect of why what we do is important. Mm -hmm. so I'd like Very to play, cool. I'd like to play a clip of that, of, you know, putting, when he put down his bass and, and started to do sound. So here you go. So, um, I guess when it, when it came to, um, playing in a band, cause you said you had played in a, in a band before, mm -hmm. what was your instrument? Uh, bass guitar. Okay. So you were a bass player. Mm -hmm. And, uh, did you just get sick of, I mean, obviously you got sick of, of other sound men, so you just wanted to make it better? or Well, at, at the time, and I had had some experience with really good sound men uh, in uh, just, just one-off situations, but uh, I realized that um, the, the sound really, especially at the time, seemed to be just miserably screwed up all the time. And so the, uh, the band, if they were worthy of it, really needed somebody out front that knew something about them, knew their material, or what a good mix sounded like 
to be able to do the sound for them. And did you do uh, actual like CDs for the group where, where they can get like the CD uh, the show after live or, recordings? Yeah, like a live recording. Rarely, on occasion, uh, mostly um, when we were doing the Mexican music, I was recording just headline bands that came through. Um, there was a couple of groups in particular that I did quite a few recordings of and, and gave them several of them because they were that good, and, and that makes it easier to get a good recording. Sure. That's so crazy. So, it, I mean, you've had a lot of history now that you mentioned the Waters Club because there's not much on the Waters Club. So kind of give me, like, and listenership, a brief kind of history of that, that place. Well, it had gone through quite a few changes, really without my knowledge, but I found out later that um, it had been a punk club for a while, strictly punk. Um, then I believe it was a restaurant. He changed it around quite a bit. Um, he? So who, who is he? Uh, the owner. The owner, Al Cordero. Uh, he, he owned it, and he, he would go with whatever was really popular and, and selling at the time. And uh, when he bought the club, it was... Uh, uh, I think a four-lane bowling alley. Then you change it to a skating rink. Then wow. you change it to a restaurant. Then you change it to a music club and so forth. So uh, it had been doing rock, and they just moved the stage and changed some things around when I first worked there, probably in about 1987. Wow. And um, continued to be hard rock, heavy metal until um, late 89. I used to go there in like 82, 83, and all those days of... So you probably used to when it was okay to wear other. spandex pants at the time. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he didn't wear spandex pants. Yeah, no, that no, time. No, 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 no. But I remember making like a you know whenever there was a big show at the Waters Club, it was always about a 45 minute drive just to get out there. But it was worth it every time, you know. Yeah, dude. I mean, that place has had a history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so you came in during like the like the heavy kind of extreme metal kind of kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you probably had a lot more of the thrashy. Death bands and and black metal and stuff. So yeah, I guess, quite quite a variety actually. Um, would, did they do shows every day? No, just um, Friday and Saturday. Wow. Okay, I didn't know this. I Friday and Saturday we usually did five bands a night. And now, how the Waters Club got its name? From my understanding, is there's a waterfall behind mm -hmm, the stage yeah. or something like that? And yeah. The the full name of the club is the Dancing Waters, and they did have a dancing water display behind the stage I and a waterfall. About that. I did not know that. That I mean, I just know certain pieces of yeah. information, but uh, yeah. not the whole picture. But um, so, when, how you're still doing sound, right? Yes. But you had done sound at uh, at the Waters Club for 22 years. I didn't realize that the Waters Club was around for you know until the yeah. 2000s or whatever. Right? Yeah. Was, well, like I say, at one point he changed to Mexican music, and it was all in Spanish, and. Um, so the clientele completely changed, and it, it kind of went off the map, I guess. But you still had a gig. Mm-hmm, yes. And that's great. Yeah. Did you do any other clubs be, uh, while you were doing the Waters Club? Uh, occasionally, some one-offs. Um, and then um, I started at uh, the Ami Hacienda nightclub and restaurant in Pico Rivera, uh, where I've been for 10 years now. Just um, working mostly Thursdays and an occasional weekend. There's another engineer that uh, was going to leave when I started there, but he's still there. So um, sometimes I cover him when he needs a night off, like tonight. And and now, how has the sound? How has sound um, kind of like how you do sound now? Has how has it changed from back when you first started doing it um, with analog versus digital? Mostly, mostly 
by the equipment, which has gotten considerably better than it was. And it allows you to hear things clearer. You can get uh, clearer sounds on all the instruments. You can put together a little bit better mix. So, But how did you approach doing sound back then? Um, well, people have asked, what's the first thing I need to do to learn to do sound? And it's learn to use your ears. Learn to listen to things. Listen to what you find as the best recordings, the best music that you can hear, and analyze it. See what it's all about and learn to use your ears. And it takes some time. I, I understood this was going to happen. People would walk and say, hey, what, what's that hum in the sound? What hum? <laughs> you know, and once you get accustomed to it, really get into it, then things like that really stand out. And it was a little tiny hum from one of the keyboards on stage at the time. But I said, OK, well, I know where I need to go with this now. But it's about learning to use your hearing, use your ears, know what a good mix is, and, and how to give each instrument its own space in a mix. That's really important. All right. And so I mentioned um, insecticide a little bit earlier, Sherman Jones and Gimme. Recently got to do an interview with them. I know it's been only been a couple weeks here, but the stories that they told were amazing. So there, there's one story that Gimme told where he sent, was going to buy Dave Mustaine's amp <laughs> um, from, from Megadeth or whatever right after the recording of Killing Is My Business. And he speculates that it, it was actually used on the, the album. So he wishes that he could have gotten that. And we had a great conversation about all, all things insecticide and whatnot. And again, if you're into speed metal and, 80s thrash this is the band I, I would say you should definitely check out um so here you go here's that clip uh i went dave mustaine was selling a marshall it was the biggest piece of crap you ever saw so i had a little four track task cam so i we used to call him david mustard seed uh but we we went <laughs> down there i went down he was three like three four three four doors down from us so i took this and I'm like, okay, man, I need an amp. So, well, I got this Marshall. Um, my manager says I can't, blah, 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 blah. And I'm looking, I'm like, I'm touching the fucking ball, and it falls off. I'm like, the fuck is it? It was a piece of shit. So I decided not to do it. Now, I wish I would have traded and got that amp. It was probably used on the first album. It's very possible. At, for, for a dent dent, whatever, you know, a whole song or a, a note or whatever. But I would have that now, and it would be epic, because that album is. That, that was just history. It was it's a history. Sure. Great let me, history. Let me elaborate on that story real quick. Dave Mustaine, Gimme, and myself were alone in the room, and Dave brought over the head, and like he said, he touched it, the fucking knob falls off, and you know the the, <laughs> the, the, the talix is all torn up on it, and we we're talking. And, you know, it's a. It was, a, it was a serious buy for. Cool, cool you guy. I mean, he, was, he was fine. He was a nice guy. We're not yeah. talking about his personality. We're talking about this Guy's sale an asshole. over this amp. The clincher for me when it was like I was giving the, uh, Dave's talking to Gimme, I'm behind Dave going. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, when you look at an amp, they just got a little switch. You flick it, you know, eight ohms, four ohms, and Pete and so on. Back then, they it was a knob that you had had to pull out and it had pins in it, and you would have to adjust it to the holes for the impedance. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the back of the amp, you know, and I said, "Hey, Dave, I go, uh, what's up? How do you do the impedance here?" And that's when he turned and he goes, "Oh, well, what you got to do is you got to get a hanger and cut it and, and bend oh, it." And it's like, you know, he goes back to give me a mo. 
But I wish I would have bought it. It was like next to nothing. I would trade. I would have been a trade, you know. Another mention I have to do is is the great Lance Harrison, who is is a dear friend of mine and and loved talking shop with him. We got to go over to his place in in Long Beach for a day, and and me and pops, uh, dad Drust, got to uh, talk with him a little bit and. You know, some of the stories he told, man, were just so, so freaking awesome. But there was one in particular that I thought was really important. And that was when he got on stage for the first time with his brother, Steve, who he's played music with basically ever since. But I just thought that moment was really special, documented and whatnot. So I'd like to play that clip and definitely go check out the great Lance Harrison. So here you go. Last time we spoke to you, you had told us a story of like the first time you and Steve actually jammed on stage for the first time, but it was like years later and I never figured out why that was. So if you can just give me some back history just on you and Steve playing together and then obviously, you know, okay. didn't you didn't you did like some jam thing or the metal jam, uh Jeff Fonstock, the metal jam is a benefit for autism awareness and uh I think he donates the money to different charities awesome. uh, on different years, you know, but uh, that thing has grown so huge since the very first one. But yeah, so um, in the beginning, it was me. I learned how to play guitar, started learning when I was like around 14, 15 years old. And uh, so, you know, Steve wanted to play, but he didn't want to play guitar. So Steve picked up a bass and started learning geezer and Iron Maiden and, you know, all that kind of cool shit. And of course, Cliff. Um, but, uh, so Steve was at his little band and then I was jamming with some guys and then we just never really, we would jam together at home when I was teaching him like the trooper or something. And, you know, we never really stuck together because we were both doing other things. And then, you know, years and years later, I forget what year it was. We played a metal jam together and that was actually the first time me and Steve played on stage together and we played the trooper. Yeah. It was pretty freaking awesome. Is it, it okay to cuss? Fuck yeah. Dude. Fuck yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. It was fucking awesome. But so at, <laughs> at that point, did you kind of immediately know that you were going to be playing more stuff with your, with your brother at that point? I had no idea. Okay. I had no idea. So then leading up to, you know, after that, you know, um, I got this opportunity and, uh, you know, I did a bunch of demo stuff, uh, that would turn into assassin's war. And, uh, so I had done all this stuff on the recorder and, uh, it was like, well, it's got two guitars, solos, vocals, and a drum machine. We need some bass on it. Do you know a bass player? And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Steve came down and just, I just sat there with him in front of the recorder and I hit record and I had guitar and I'd show him things. And then boom, we just punch him in and out and, we recorded stuff and that was pretty much the beginning. That was in uh, late 2005, early 2006. Wow. And uh, that's what led up to, you know, the past 16 years of my life, just kicking ass around the world. That's with, awesome to do it with your brother too. You know what I mean? Uh, that's always been the yeah. the best part it's of great it. Great chemistry. And, and, and well, not only that, but it's probably an excuse for you guys to get together. Cause you know, obviously your family. Yeah. Like blood, but I'm saying you have now this activity to be like, let's get together and, and just jam. And, and you know, when you're young and you're, you're, you know, still naive and all that stuff, you know, you think the dream, right? Just, yeah, I want to play live. I want to be on albums and I want to make money. 
Well, two of those things happened. <laughs> um, but you know, then reality sets in and you got to work at, you got to work a freaking job or two or three jobs. And, and then lastly, for me personally, and I want, and I'm going to give the floor to you to talk all this shit because I've talked way too much of it so far. Uh, the cherry on top for me, my number, you know, one, um, it's no no contest was interviewing Gene Hogan at the San Diego Metal Swap Meet. I mean, Fabulous. for a, a number of reasons, right? For one, it was it was the whole gang. It was me, you, Pops, and Gene. Can't get much better than that. The four horsemen, man, four horsemen, and and uh, we had a great conversation. I, I thought I thought it was. Short and sweet. Um, I'm grateful to even have gotten 20 minutes out of out of him, and and super grateful that he gave us that opportunity. So thank you, Gene, if you're watching this, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, but you know, there's uh, the question that you know, I I'm gonna back up real quick. So one of the reasons why I picked this, from when we had a great conversation, but the other one was, it's no secret, it made blabbermouth. So the show has officially um, made it to the um, publication companies for some interviews that we've done so far and uh, eternally grateful. It only legitimizes what we do here. And I'm looking forward to many, 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 many more of that. So, Yeah, amazing. Nicest guy on the planet. Amazing. And, and I'd like to particularly play this next clip um, was – it's always important for me. I, I wanted, uh, I'll probably end up playing a little bit of, of what you had asked him about the uh, Time Does Not Heal record, about all the riffs and whatnot. But, you know, I, I always think it's important when somebody, when you're an interviewer, the biggest home run that somebody can tell you or, or, or a guest can tell you is that's a good question. And we got one out of him. So I'd like to play that question and, and branch off into the, um, excuse me, the uh, time is not heal question that you had asked because I thought that was really killer. Awesome. So here you go. Now let's go back to the the Dark Angel period of your specific career and, and what you're doing now with them because there's been kind of some news but kind of not some news. So I'm curious what's going on in the Dark Angel camp. Well, uh, so far, you know, we've been playing a lot of live shows and we tend to play kind of festivals because that just kind of works out the best. Um, we're writing the next album, and I've been concentrating on writing that, and Jim Durkin is also writing. At the moment, Jim, he's had to take a little bit of time off from some live shows, but that was always kind of built into our system because when we got ourselves back together, he's like, hey, guys, just so you know, there's going to be sometimes somewhere in the future where... I might not be able to make certain shows or there could be an entire run that I might not be able to make. So, you know, as long as you guys are cool moving forward with it and we were able to get a good eight years with Jim, you know, at least. And, you know, so there you go. Um, and, you know, we're just right. And we're just trying to make it the most aggressive Dark Angel music that we can make, you know. Will this be the first with a click? Or are you doing it without it, just like all the, the first four? That is a good question. You know, I haven't considered that yet. Um, I would imagine I probably would use a click for it. Um, but it's not mandated by any means because this is old school visceral thrash metal. You know, it, it didn't back then. There were no rules, you know, just like 
you know, did you know that when you come into the second verse, it's faster than the first verse? It's like, no, I didn't know that, you know, but there were no rules. So just, just play vicious and fast and aggressive and from your heart. And that's the way to do it. And I love that you ha- you still have Ron Reinert on, on vocals. That's and right. Just, yeah, I mean, man, he's crushing. So, <laughs> to me, he's my favorite of the Dark Angel. Me too. You know, I'll tell you. Absolutely. You know, Ron's great. And, you know, over the years, he has developed this, like, timbre to his voice, you know, where his voice has gotten even lower and richer and more rumbling. So that, that's pretty darn cool, too. I'm definitely going to utilize that. But he's always had this singing style underneath the raspiness. Abs- absolutely. Which makes it so unique to thrash metal. Darn so tootin'. Yeah, man. And that's just, since we are old school, you know, OG years, there were no rules. That's why when Ron came into the fold, there, I, I couldn't put rules onto it and say, you got to sound just like the last guy. Or, you know, I was just like, Ron, be yourself. I'll write for you. Now, was there a kind of like a boat of contention when it came to, uh, I guess, pressure when getting Ron initially into Dark Angel at first? Well, no, we were really happy to have him. He was pretty instant because we had gone through about 10 months of rehearsing some talented guys, some good guys, but we were like, hmm, they're all, you know, any one of these guys that we've jammed with, they could do the job. It could be all right, won't be bad or anything. But then when Ron came around, it was like, yes, like awesome. instantly. So we're That's like, great. yay, Yahoo, darn tootin'. I love it. So, so this next album, if you, I think it was Time Does Not Heal, it might have been Leave Scars. There was a sticker on on the tape, on the cassette that mm-hmm. it came with. It was like, this contains 56 riffs in a song. Oh, yeah, something. 246 riffs. Yeah, are you trying to beat that this time? God, Lord <laughs> Almighty, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all, man. That was just, that was just a, a, how, that, how that turned out was, you know, when you're, when you're figuring out the, the publishing and I wanted to make sure that whoever wrote the majority of the song got their name first in the in the like credits on the record. That's why you would see Erickson Hoagland on some of the some of the songs and sometimes it's Hoagland Erickson. But I just wanted to make sure you know, I just want to be fair. That's cool. And so I just I was like, Well, I guess you're gonna have to count up the riffs, you know, this one's you know, I had a little <laughs> chart, you know, just this one's Brett, this one's me, these four are Brett, and this one's me. And I just kind of went like that. And when when we had tracked the record and it was all done, turned it into the record label, I got a call from one of the record label guys. And he was like, God dang, there's a whole lot of riffs on this record. And I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, there's 246 <laughs> of those things. And then months later, we see it on the poster, Sticker, you know, so nine songs, 67 minutes, 246 riffs. I was like, that's great. Are you kidding me? Best promo ever for a record. <laughs> that's pretty fun, huh? So those are my kind of top picks for this year. We've done a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, I'm going to give the floor to you, man. What have you been some of your favorites? Well, my, some of my other favorites, although they're not not really interviews, is the uh, I believe I believe it's on. It's up. The one myself, you, and Steve did on the making of an album that we have to finish off in part two. So stay tuned. But That'll be uh, next year. But I sorry, yeah. no, I have not posted that interview, but I will play a clip from it anyways, because fuck it. Who cares? Right on, right on. And uh, 
Yeah. What was it, what was an important aspect of that episode? Which, which part is most important from that episode that I should kind of have people check out? The, the way that I don't know the whole thing. You could choose any <laughs> section of it because it really does kind of, you know, if for somebody who wouldn't know anything, which I'm finding out is a lot of people, <laughs> to, to, for that interview, for that for, for that episode to do it the way we did it, it was flawless, but everybody made such good points. And of course, it's Steve. Any interview with Steve is awesome because he's such a great talker. He's, you can listen to him tell stories and speak for that guy could be a professional. So, well, technically he is. Wow. But yeah, let's let's play a clip from that that said interview, and uh, we definitely definitely need to, you know, kind of circle back uh, and do that part two episode. So here you go. In saying this too, there are different kinds of ways to record. I mean, you can record now in, literally in your bedroom. I mean, I've yeah. made records in my bedroom. Uh, so there's a different kinds of methods to recording. I don't think there's one wrong or right way of doing it because it's all art. It's all art is kind of subjective. There's no right or wrong way to make art. So typically for like if you're doing it in like your, your bedroom per se, say you're not even, you know, you're not going into a studio old school style 24 track mixing board right two rooms attached which is what you guys are kind of talking about so let's say let's say even going that route i think the benefit to doing that as obviously you can make the 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 demos and and pretty much you have all the the time in the world to do it because you're it's nothing's really out of pocket you have all the ma materials you got the the daw system right which is like pro tools or or yeah. Reaper or or any of that kind of stuff. And you're you put in thousands of hours to learn how to record. You can, you know, that's one method. Or, you know, you could obviously do what Shannon and Steve are, have mentioned is you hire an outside producer. Some of the benefits to hiring an outside producer is that you get you're not like married to the music. You're not so like ingrained in what and and all the material that you've been you know, fine tuning and just engrossed in, in, in the music, you kind of almost develop cabin fever. If you, you know, cause you've been doing, you've been hearing the same shit over and over and over again. So I think bringing in outside people is a huge benefit to what the material can morph into. And, and Steve, I got to ask you specifically, sure. how do you, how did you specifically kind of find your producer and how do you like to work when it comes to getting into the studio and working with a producer? Okay. Well, we're about to do our third record. We're in the starting, starting phases of doing our third record with Ron Sandoval and how the relationship developed from him being friend to being producer was we had put out the last record we did with the previous producer and Ron, it was brand spanking new. Ron sat down and listened to it. And he goes, I bet you wish you would have done this at this exact second. Go, yeah, he's right. He says, maybe if you would have done this here, use this tone there, that would have been better. Yeah, he's right. He says, and the song order and this and that. And everything is, in other words, he was listening. Uh, somebody who's going to 
do your faders and do your knobs and all that kind of stuff like that has got to have an interest in the band beyond just monetary. They've got to look at it almost as though they're a member, that they're a contributor, that they're a writer. So whoever your producer is that you bring in the door, you have to trust as you would trust a band member. Um, so that's kind of how that relationship developed. We started off by making one recording to see if we could work together. It went well. We made a record. It went well. Did the live record. It went really well. And now we're going back in to do another one. And gosh, we start recording. We finally start recording drums in another week. It's going to be amazing. But um, yeah, it's you develop the relationship. The relationship is everything, much like with your labels, much like with your promoters, with your merchandise people. All you have are your relationships with people. And that is really everything. It's not how popular you are. It's not how successful you are. It's the relationships. And that determines what you can and cannot do. All right. That's it, man. Okay. <laughs> That's all I remember. It's all I remember. It's been such a blur this year. Well, we've had, we have many more episodes to go. I can tell you that much. Um, we will be doing, I mean, both of us have countless releases for next year. So it ain't even funny. Uh, we might have to take a break from the show. I'm hoping not. I, I just want to continue as much as like as much as possible here. But you know, there might come a point where we need a couple months off to again um, make some said episode. Or, you know, not episodes. Some said music and whatnot. I particularly have something in the works that I can't announce just yet. But Shannon knows what's what's going on, and you know, he can fully understand why I'm saying what I uh, what what I'm saying now. So. But it's going to be a great year for all of us. And, um, you know, but this year was also, I can't stress this enough. This year was also the year of growth for me. 2022 was the year of growth. And what I mean by this is me as an individual speaking. Individually speaking, I, I'm, I've grown more than this year than any other year prior. For some strange reason, you can call me kooky call me corky but it's it's the uh, gosh darn truth here um i got to make up with not only mr caesar escobar uh uh and alejandro palais of the uh into the aquatic sector record and we're all on the same page and there's you know it, it, everything's made up like it it's it, it feels very freeing um to have done that and i i can't thank them enough for that gift and i'm glad that we all can you know, have a beverage and whatnot, or go get some, a Sammy or pizza, whatever it is, or I don't know, gosh, you know, go out to dinner and just hang out. Um, and there's no like kind of bitterness. There's no anything anymore. Like there, you know, that there was for me personally, you know, years ago and, and, you know, they gave me that gift. So thank you guys. But another aspect was getting in touch with somebody who I hadn't seen in 15 years. Uh, and that's Jake Durbin, um, who played on the the Lost Lives Volume One uh, album with me. Live, it was live at Hoagies, and I again, I'll get more into the releases and what we, the band has done. But that was a huge moment for me was getting the opportunity to reconvene with some of the players that, you know, were kind of lost in time. It's important for me to document all that stuff, so. This year has been a huge, huge year of growth for me personally. How's it been for you or? My band finally finished the mixing and the mastering's done. 
the albums at the press plant. It took me 18 years to have this redone. So early 2023 is the release. That's all I know. It's in the label's hands now. But uh, we just started working on new songs, recording new songs. Just started. Everything's, these are the, some of the best songs I've ever been a part of. So I'm totally happy in doing it. And, well, not, o- and, not only that, but this has also been the year that you found your band. That is like more important. I, I think obviously besides creating the music, but dude, you found your core. You've never had a core where you like, it's, it hasn't been the synergy that you have now. So I think this year for you personally, what I've seen, and again, you can cut me off and, Tell me I'm full of shit or whatever, but I think this has been the year of of AOB as far as reconnecting with the music, with the guys, you know, having new guys be a part of it and still maintain the sound and quality and and knowing that there's hope, you know, for you to continue to play music the way you want to do it. And just knowing that you're going to make better music now with having that, that chemistry and synergy with the five of you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't agree, disagree with that. Um, but, but I would say I discovered that part last year towards the end of last year, but this year a little more solid, a little more solid. Yeah. I'll agree with that. We all, we all, know each other a little more you know so the 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 camaraderie is better than it was but yeah man i couldn't ask for a better band than what i have that's definitely the truth physically every every way man we all connect musically like a glove we all connect physically like you know everyone's we're all almost like best friends, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's definitely amazing. You know, an- another aspect I want to get into, and it's, a, it's a, again, it's the same with me as it is for you, is 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 the band. Um, I have personally been going through some, some health stuff this year. It's been trying and exhausting, to say the least. Uh, finally overcoming it i'm super excited for the things to come we are continuing to write a new record we are continuing to have a bunch of material now in the can and and just knowing that there is hope out there has been it's given me everything um it it made everything worth it having to go through this tough time it's been absolutely worth it and again i got to find myself and there's not a lot of people that get to say that. So, you know, I've learned a lot about who I am and, and how I need to overcome more things and, and become a better person and, and knowing who I am and never compromising on my beliefs. Um, and, and also I want to mention this too with the band and whatnot, you know, 2000, you know, 22 is, is also the 10 year of, of the Maleficent record. And again, that was my, so that's my first album that has turned 10. That was a big milestone for me personally. 
I get that we're not as old as, as you know, the bands that we interview on the show or some that, you know, some are, are even newer than, than us. Uh, but that was a big deal for me knowing that like, we're still here 10 years later. It's a big deal. Not a lot of bands um, get to say that. Right. Some bands have to take a break to say that, you know what I mean? That's what you haven't stopped. That's kick ass. That's kick ass. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Um, but it's also a testament to the music we make too. And, and knowing again, we never compromise. We do what we want to do. If you're, if you're in it and enjoy the ride, come with us, man. If not, there's plenty of bands out there. It's all good. Um, yeah. But, you know, the band's done a lot this year. I want to put in perspective for people. You know, so we released, uh, firstly, we released the Into the Aquatic Sector reissue this year. I don't think many people realize that. So we released that first. Then um, on CD and vinyl and whatnot, at, uh, No Life to Metal Records, which you can pick up, you know, from Crypts to Chaos. It was, a, it was a, essentially all of our demos and a, and a bonus live album that I found in a box of pictures. Um, and I've been working on some of the Lost Live series, you know, so I just, um, again, it'll be out within the next week. Uh, but Lost Lives Volume 2 is out, you know, next year, within the next week or two. And the first one came out uh, to, in, you know, 2022. So we've had three releases this year and that's more than a lot of bands can say right <laughs> not bad not bad for a band that you know while i'm healing it's not not bad that you know for a band that's healing very true very yeah. cool man that's a lot it's, to be proud of it's a, it's been a big year for us both man but i just want to throw all that stuff out there because that that's all i got on my notes but Anything to, uh, you have to say, Shannon? I want to before we wrap it up here. Well, it's always cool to be doing the podcast, man. I always don't plug the podcast enough when we're talking, and I'm sorry. But oh, you know what? You I have a great time doing the podcast. We always have a good time. That's that's always what helps make this year go by too. Is me and you talking discussing shit it's always a good time those always mean a lot too so hell yeah i love it and of course when he says he's sorry he's really not because nobody needs to apologize on this fucking show we don't <laughs> apologize we don't compromise if you like it great if you don't great uh we enjoy having everybody here and and talking shop and getting feedback uh is always appreciated um, it's always valued and, and just know that everybody is valued who, who watches, watches and, and listens to the show. We are yeah. all valued. And I think this show proves it. This show proves that we are all valued. We all have a say, we all have a story. And, uh, you know, Shannon, I want to thank you again for this tremendous year. Looking forward to many, many, many more of these episodes and just talking shit. Now that we have a new format, we are like the, uh, the, the, the PCN now. Yeah. Corner Network, you know, we're like a news channel, although uh, we're not. But at the same time, it's uh, it it's kind of cool. Indeed. We're going to be doing some 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 new things on the show, and uh, looking forward to many more of these. So, right on for another episode of Poverty's Corner, guys. 
we're out of here. Cheers.